Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's passionate speech today in Atlanta in defense of voting rights, perhaps referring to Senators Manchin and Cinema when he said he has been having conversations with lawmakers about voting rights for months and now wants to see action, angrily stating, I'm tired of being quiet. In calling out Republican senators for obstruction of majority rule via the filibuster, Biden mentioned how world leaders have expressed concerns to him about ongoing threats to American democracy, remarking, We must be vigilant, and the world is watching. They're watching American democracy and seeing if we can meet this moment. Joining us is Fred Wertheimer, the founder and president of Democracy 21, a non-profit, non-partisan organization that promotes campaign finance, lobbying, ethics and related reforms to bring about government transparency and accountability. Wertheimer has spent 35 years working on government integrity issues and has an article at the Washington Post, Fixing the Electoral Count Act is no substitute for real reform. We will discuss this make-or-break moment for American democracy as the Senate takes up the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, with Senate Majority Leader Schumer promising action on filibuster reform by January the 17th. Then we'll speak with Sally Denton, an award-winning author, investigative journalist and historian, whose books include The Profiteers, Passion and Principle, American Massacre, Faith and Betrayal, The Bluegrass Conspiracy, Money and Power, and the forthcoming book The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land. A Guggenheim Fellow and a public policy scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center, she is the author of The Plots Against the President, FDR, A Nation in Crisis and the Rise of the American Right. And we will discuss her article at The Guardian, Why is so little known about the 1930s coup attempt against FDR? Then finally, with diplomatic talks between the United States and Russia yielding little, we'll look into what a war between Russia and Ukraine might involve and speak with Taras Kuzio, research fellow on Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia at the Henry Jackson Society think tank in London. He's the author and editor of 21 books, including Russian Nationalism, Then the Russian-Ukraine War, Autocracy, Orthodoxy, Nationality, and Putin's War Against Ukraine, and Revolution, Nationalism, and Crime. And we will discuss how he thinks a full-scale conflict is unlikely, but wars around the periphery of Ukraine in the Donbass and on the Black Sea coast are a distinct possibility. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Fred Wertheimer, the founder and president of Democracy 21, a non-profit, non-partisan organization that promotes campaign finance, lobbying, ethics, and related reforms to accomplish these goals. Wertheimer has spent 35 years working on government integrity issues, and he has an article at the Washington Post, Fixing the Electoral Count Act is No Substitute for Real Election Reform. Welcome to Background Briefing, Fred Wertheimer. Thanks very much. Good to be with you. Thanks for joining us. And what did you make of President Biden's uh, speech today in Atlanta in the very district of John Lewis and uh, just ahead of the uh, birthday of Martin Luther King? Well, I thought it was a powerful speech, symbolically important, given where it was uh, presented. Uh, But we're also at a point where we're at the time for action as well as speeches. Uh, We're at the moment of truth on voting rights legislation. Uh, We are at decision time uh, and people, my organization, Democracy 21, hundreds of other organizations, thousands of individuals have been working all year long to get to this point. Uh, We are pleased to have President 
Biden speaking so loudly at this stage. Uh, but an awful lot of work has gone into this to get to this stage. And now we need to persuade two senators uh, not to stand in the way of this legislation that they are co-sponsoring. We need to persuade them to to support efforts to make whatever modifications are in the filibuster rule that are necessary to present this, to pass this by a majority vote, since every Republican is opposing it and we have a 50-50 Senate. I chuckled today at Senator, Senate Republican leader McConnell's statement threatening those who try to modify the filibuster, saying that he would personally guarantee if the rules are modified, the Senate would not be more efficient and that they would make this, make the Senate more inconvenient for the majority in the White House than anyone has seen in living memory. Senator McConnell has almost single-handedly made the Senate a dysfunctional institution. He has weaponized the filibuster, used it purely for partisan purposes, and that is a principal reason why we have to have some changes in the filibuster rule. Because leading his Senate Republicans, uh, he just blocks and paralyzes everything for partisan purposes. Uh, he did it in the Obama administration when he led the greatest number of filibusters in history. Uh, he said uh, that was his same goal in the Biden administration. This is not a means for protecting the Senate minority in the eyes of Senator McConnell, this is the way he controls the Senate, paralyzes it, and simply stops it from functioning. So that lies at the heart of the changes we have to make now. We have to change the, the, uh, the rules or modify them in order to pass voting rights legislation that is gravely needed if we're going to protect our democracy. But we also have to do it to restore the Senate to an institution that can function. Uh, that's where we are, and that's why this battle is so important. I hope the president will do whatever he can with the two senators who haven't committed yet. I would also point out that Senate Majority Leader uh, Schumer has done a brilliant, masterful job of getting us to the place we're at now. We would not be here without House Speaker Pelosi or Senate Majority Leader Schumer. We're at a point where this battle can be won. And I basically believe if we don't win it, we're going to lose our democracy as we know it. And again, I'm speaking with Fred Wertheimer, who's the founder and president of Democracy 21, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that promotes campaign finance, lobbying, ethics, and related reforms to accomplish these goals. Wertheimer has spent 35 years working on government integrity issues, and he has an article at the Washington Post, Fixing the Electoral Count Act is No Substitute for Real Election Reform. So when the president said that I've been quiet for too long, he was more or less implying that he uh, has tried to talk both to Manchin and Cinema and others, I take it, since he's been in the Senate a long time. And he, at one point he said, I'm so damn old. I mean, he, he made a joke about it. It seems as if he's basically trying to sort of, I don't know, name and shame. The whole appeal of the speech was to the conscience. And he's saying, you know, very dramatic when he said not one Republican has supported voting rights. And they used to support voting rights. And he went through the long list of history, including Strom Thurmond supporting the Voting Rights Act. And today, not one supported. So it was very passionate, very fiery. And I'm just wondering whether we still have some men and women in that body that have a conscience. 
Well, on this issue, we don't have any Senate Republican who meets that test. And on your comment, I would simply agree that the president is correct in saying he was been he has been quiet for too long. Well, name and shaming is it going to work? Do you think with the mansion and cinema? I mean, no, it's not name and shaming. This is this is going to be won by his colleagues in the Senate, the other Senate Democrats, and the two independent senators collectively persuading Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema to do the right thing here. They know what the right thing is. They know this legislation is essential. They're both sponsors of it. The Freedom to Vote Act was engineered by Senator Manchin himself. Senator Manchin said earlier in this year, inaction on voting rights legislation is is not an option. So there are hundreds of groups, as I said, tens of thousands of individuals that have been working to persuade the Senate to pass this legislation by whatever means for months, really since since the beginning of the year. Senate Majority Leader Schumer and his colleagues have been working very hard for some time now to persuade Senator Manchin and Cinema to support a modification of the Senate rules. And we will know shortly whether we have gotten there. And in terms of the institution and those in the institution of the Senate, do you think they would be affected by what the president said in terms of the Senate having been rendered into a shell of its former self? Well, they've been saying that themselves for months. Senator uh, Schumer has basically been arguing for some time that we need to restore the Senate to what it once was, and that is a central reason for making modifications. Senator Manchin, in 2011, said the Senate was being paralyzed by filibusters. And that was in the middle of the period where where the Senate Republican leader uh, was setting a record for filibusters. I will say that the president made a very powerful speech today, and he should do whatever he can but he is not leading this effort. Senator Schumer is leading it, and Senator Schumer's colleagues in the Senate are leading it. And they have been working extremely hard, intensely, for weeks to get us across the finish line. Well, that is going to be happening in the next week or so, isn't it? And what steps do you expect, and how can you get around the, the filibuster, particularly these two senators, and there's even apparently more that are skeptical about it. It's only a Senate rule. It's not in the Constitution, as Vice President Harris made clear before Biden's speech. What's your sense of the timeline here and how Schumer is going to accomplish this? Well, first of all, I would point out, I guess you're saying that there are others who are skeptical about it because you have read that. And that's just flatly wrong. If they get Senators Manchin and Sinema, they will have the 50 votes they need to win this battle. Uh, There aren't other senators who are going to stand uh, on the sidelines. That's just not accurate or true. Secondly, I can't predict how Senator Schumer is going to go about this. He has said by no later than Martin Luther King's uh, day, January 17th, he will bring the bills and the Senate rules changes uh, for consideration by the Senate. Uh, And we will have to sit and watch and see how he does it and how this plays out. So he has the 50 votes plus the vice president. 
The bill will be about. He also a, has forty-eight votes to change the rules. Right, it'll be about to change the rules, and at that point, we'll know what exactly the workaround is. Is that how it will unfold? Yes. 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 There's no public information on uh, how this is going to play out. That Although I know the president. I read. Sure, but he did mention how there used to be a talking filibuster. So there. Yes, and, and Senator Manchin in 2011 voted to change the filibuster rules. He voted to get rid of a filibuster on the motion to open debate. And that motion has blocked the filibuster debate all year, all last year on four occasions. And he sponsored and voted for a resolution to return to a talking filibuster. These are not new ideas to Senator Manchin. And but exactly how... Go ahead. But exactly how it's going to be done, we don't know. Is that what you're about to say? Yes, we're going to have to wait and see. Sure. But what about the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which it would obviously overturn the Supreme Court gutting of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act and weakening of Section 2, my understanding is that that's not the end of it. There will be lawsuits, right, from Republicans, and some voting rights bills that were being passed decades ago are still being contested. So how quickly can this get done to stop the voting suppression, particularly the gerrymandering, that's already underway? Well, first of all, the voting suppression laws and gerrymandering are in the Freedom to Vote Act. They're not in the John... Lewis Voting Rights Act. That bill deals with pre-clearance of new laws that would discriminate. So, uh, and if the Freedom to Vote Act passes unmodified rules, so will the John Lewis Act. Uh, there will be lawsuits challenging, and we will find out uh, how fast the courts will move here. But, you know, they're dealing with uh, the, a fundamental right to vote, the Congress has the power to overturn uh, these state laws because Congress has the, the power in the Constitution to set the rules for voting in federal elections. So one of the questions will be whether the law is, in, is enjoined or whether it will take effect immediately. And that may vary from district to district. We're going to be in the courts. There's no question about it. And the courts can be very slow. That's a stage I look very forward to getting to. Now, let me add one other thing. There may, some of your listeners have been, may have heard about what Senator McConnell is doing to try to do a bait and switch by saying all of the sudden, the Republicans are willing to consider uh, the Electoral Count Act. And they're doing that as a way of saying, well, that's what we really should do, not the Voting Rights Act. The Electoral Count Act needs to be fixed. It is an, a law from the 1870s that governs how votes, electoral votes are counted in a presidential election. But it doesn't solve the problems we have today. Uh, it should be repaired. It will be repaired, but not as a substitute for voting rights. And this is just a, another scam by Senator McConnell and others. Uh, it, it will not affect House and Senate races. It will not affect uh, all of the uh, harsh uh, voting rights rules that have restricted voting by millions of Americans. It will not affect the voter subversion laws that are allowing partisan uh, officials to start uh, rigging uh, election results. So if anyone has heard about this, discount it. It's not real. It's an effort to kill the voting rights laws. So just in closing then, Fred Wertheimer, 
President Biden, in the end, turned to these young students behind him and in front of him and more or less said, the ball's in your court in terms of a popular movement. Do you see that happening? Well, the ball's in their court for future movements. But right now, the ball is in the court of a whole lot of the people who have been working hard on this. In the end, the ball is in the court of 50 Democratic and independent senators, and particularly in the hands of Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema. They will be judged in history by what they do here. And they will be judged on the wrong side of history on issues of monumental importance if they don't do what they must know is the right thing and help to pass these bills. These bills must be passed. Well, I thank you so much for joining us here today, Fred Wertheimer. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And I've been speaking with Fred Wertheimer, who's the founder and president of Democracy 21, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that promotes campaign finance, lobbying, ethics, and related reforms to bring about government transparency and accountability. And he has an article at the Washington Post, Fixing the Electoral Count Act is No Substitute for Real Election Reform. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing why there is so little known about the 1930s coup attempt against FDR. Georgia, Georgia, the whole day through, just an old sweet song, keeps Georgia on my mind. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sally Denton, an award-winning author, investigative journalist, and historian whose books include The Profiteers, Passion and Principle, American Massacre, Faith and Betrayal, The Bluegrass Conspiracy, Money and Power, and the forthcoming book, The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land. A Guggenheim Fellow and a Public Policy Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center, she's the author of the Plots Against the President, FDR, A Nation in Crisis, and the Rise of the American Right. And she has an article at The Guardian, Why is so little known about the 1930s coup attempt against FDR? Welcome to Background Briefing, Sally Denton. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And we have a, this extraordinary phenomenon in political science today in terms of what is ruling America and our politics, and that is plutocratic populism. We've always had plutocrats in this country, but they have formed a sort of insidious alliance with <laughs> populists, where in effect, people like the Koch brothers and Peter Thiel and these other libertarians, billionaires, have basically managed to get the working people in this country fighting amongst themselves so that they're distracted from the reality of income inequality and the extent to which they're being hosed and being fed bread and circuses in terms of the culture wars. So that's the current environment. Take us back to the environment in 1933 in terms of the plutocrats and what they were plotting and what made them tick. Well, I think back in the book that I wrote in, in 2012 about the coup attempt against Franklin Delano Roosevelt and how it was really spawned from the it was spawned from the right wing, but it was uh, fanned by the populist of the moment. Now it was a completely different. What I write is kind of drawing the parallels to today, but it was very different in in the fact that the economy at the time that um, everything is going on in the United States today, there's not the obvious amount of unrest that there was. In 1933, uh, when Roosevelt first became president, America was really, you know, it, but the stock market had crashed and the Great Depression was underway. And the, there were millions of unemployed and people in poverty. And then you, here comes Roosevelt, who really believed that, um, that the key to a democratic 
uh, society in, in the United States was really to redistribute the wealth and to create a middle class. And that, of course, was um, resisted greatly by the, uh, the powerful, wealthy uh, in America during that day, the Wall Street brokers and, and the bankers and uh, mega rich of the time. And the, the, the concentration of wealth was, was pretty concentrated in a, in a small percentage of the population. And when Roosevelt became president, he, he came, you know, from that class. And so the people from his, who would have expected him to be more, uh, go along with that kind of an oligarchy, uh, turned on him when they saw, you know, that the, the new deal that he was proposing, uh, they saw as a great threat to their, their own wealth. And, but especially even more than that, the changing complexion of America at large, that, you know, by creating a middle class, they were giving power, there would be giving power to people of color and, and a much broader swath. And I think that that was kind of what was germinating. But you know, you mentioned the, the uh, plutocrats with and the populists at the time, the populists at this time were Father Coughlin and, and Huey Long. And you know, they were as fanning all the flames. They were kind of doing the dirty work for the Wall Street bankers that didn't get into the streets. But there's also the other backdrop, of course, what was happening in Europe with the, the rise of the Nazis in, uh, and in Italy, the rise of Mussolini's black shirts and uh, Hitler's brown shirts in Germany. And there were American equivalents, to, to, in a way, to the, today's Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, they were the yeah, they were... What I call the the rainbow of of colored shirts all of a sudden they you know there was a great a great deal of attention paid to um Hitler and Mussolini and and it seemed attractive to a segment of the American population at the time um mostly the elites Lindbergh and and Henry Ford but this um the rise of these militias which are we see them today we saw them you know primarily I mean, later during the uh, the last election. But if you look at the standoffs, the the Bundy standoff in the American West during you know uh, four or five years ago, and all of the you know this was a land rights issue. But th- th- it was clear that these militias were clearly they were rising in stature and and spreading and um, and they were it just kind of drew uh, you can draw a, a direct link. Uh, back to the rise of the same kinds of uh, paramilitary, you know, patriots from almost 90 years ago. And again, I'm speaking with Sally Denton, an award-winning author, investigative journalist, and historian, whose books include The Profiteers, Passion and Principle, American Massacre, Faith and Betrayal, The Bluegrass Conspiracy, Money and Power, and the forthcoming book, The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land. A Guggenheim Fellow and a public policy scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center, she's the author of The Plots Against the President, FDR, A Nation in Crisis and the Rise of the American Right. And she has an article at The Guardian, Why is so little known about the 1930s coup attempt against FDR? And, of course, there were, as you write in your article in The Guardian, uh, Sally Denton, that in Philadelphia there were the khaki shirts recruited from pro-Mussolini immigrants, the silver shirts, an apocalyptic Christian militia copying the sort of racist uh, Texas Rangers. And then you had the gray shirts in New York, New York organized around removing communist college professors and the Tennessee-based white shirts with the Crusader Cross, etc. So... The hero of your story, though, is so extraordinary, and that is, of course, the retired United States Marine Corps Major General Smedley Darlington Butler, who claimed he was recruited by a group of these Wall Street financiers to lead a fascist coup against FDR, who was heavily protected at his inauguration. And Butler was a Quaker, a First World War hero. He was called the Maverick Marine. He was a soldier, soldiers, but he was obviously a, a man of the people. Uh, he said, in retrospect, looking back at his 33 years in the, in the Marines, he said, quote, I spent most of my time being a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and for bankers. In short, I was a racketeer for capitalism. 
and the people that tried to hire him in a coup attempt against FDR were none other than the richest man in America, J.P. Morgan Jr., Irene DuPont, Robert Sterling Clark of the Singer Showing Machine uh, Fortune, and the chief executives of General Motors, Birdseye, and General Foods. So today's equivalents actually aren't quite <laughs> quite as, <laughs> as you've got the My Pillow Man, uh, right. <laughs> and you've got the guy from Overstock, Patrick Byrne. But then you've got Peter Thiel, I mean, a billionaire, and the Koch brothers as well. So. Well, the thing is that, you have you know, General Butler, had he, uh, you know, I think that he was a, uh, that the the plotters were misguided when they chose him as their person to lead it. They did that knowing that he had the complete support of all the veterans, which was a huge you know, they had he had the bonus army before and, um, you know, the veterans who hadn't been paid from World War One, and they all loved him. It was uh, all the veterans, you know, thought that uh, that he was he was a maverick and he was also a pacifist, even though he had been in some of the most violent theaters throughout the world. But he, you know, at the end of his career, he realized that he felt like he had been duped that he had basically at some point, you know, he made, he made the world safe for United fruit. And once he realized that, you know, that what the American military was doing in support of, you know, these corporate, um, uh, it was before there were the, you know, mega multinationals, but it was basically the same thing. But when they went to him, they, um, they misunderstood the depth of his distaste for the imperialism of the of the uh, country at the time and his support for FDR, so he blew the. I mean, the difference between you know today and 1933, or you know 2020 and and 1933 is the or 2021 January 6th, is that it uh, it was thwarted, and it was thwarted by uh, the government itself and. Basically, FDR, when he found out about it, I mean, well, Butler went to J. Edgar Hoover, who told FDR, and there's a lot, um, you know, to suggest that there, there was a deal made to, by the people of, of FDR's class, there was a deal made for him, for the administration not to prosecute these plotters in exchange for letting the, letting FDR's new deal go through. And I mean, I've even heard that, you know, FDR went to the cl- Groton with the class of 1900. And I understand and have heard that and read that, or not read publicly, but have heard that the uh, Reverend Endicott Peabody, who was the founder of Groton, called called his uh, the uh, class leaders from Groton over the previous years together and asked them to give FDR a break. And uh, because... Uh, um, they were, and, and that included Avril Harriman, who had been there for the class of 2008. So it was thwarted, whereas um, this, you know, the attempt in uh, uh, 2021, it wasn't really thwarted. And, and as, you know, I think uh, Sidney Blumenthal in a piece in The Guardian recently writes about how the insurrection was not part of the coup. The recent insurrection was not part of the coup, but was the response to the failed coup. So it's all very much alive and ticking, it seems to me. Whereas 1933, it was was stopped. Well, another comparison, of course, is, is the fact that we do have the House Select Committee investigating the coup, and Congress did investigate this attempted coup against FDR by these plutocrats, hiring Smedley Butler and figuring that he could get the veterans to come out and the Remington's Arms Company was going to provide them with firearms, etc. McCormick did head up this congressional committee, but what's important about that is that they did the work and Congress McCormick said if General Butler had not been the patriot he was and if they had been able to maintain secrecy, the plot certainly might very well have succeeded. When times are desperate and people are frustrated, anything could happen. But the point you're making there, Sally, is that they didn't name and shame these plutocrats, did they? That the House report basically sanitized the names. So that's likely the deal that FDR made, right? With the plutocrats. Well, yeah, I think so. Well, they sanitized the name, and, and most of the, I mean, I did a lot of research on this book, 
back in, uh, you know, 2012, 2011, 2012 at the Library of Congress and the National Archives and for a coup attempt that, you know, it was, um, it was, there was no question that it had occurred. The only historical debate is the degree to which it was, um, it could have been successful, but the files are so thin, it's laughable at the National Archives. And but the parallel to, again, to today, 90 years later, is that, yes, there's a congressional committee, but, you know, we still haven't seen any of the big fish. And that's what that's what General Butler said at the end. They didn't hold anybody. They didn't hold anybody accountable and they didn't call in anybody, any of the big names that he had given them. As he said, all the big shots weren't even called to testify and they don't appear anywhere in any of the uh, congressional reports. So I think that's one of the frustrations in America today with everybody watching the January 6th committee and hoping, you know, just watching and hoping that that's not going to happen again. It's not going to be a complete whitewash of the people. And there's going to be, you know, a few hundred of uh, low level people who turned up at the Capitol as uh, protesters, violent protesters. Uh, If that's all we get, we're going to have to show for the coup attempt of of uh, 2021, we're in trouble. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, the Sedition Caucus, as they're called, it was extraordinary that just uh, literally the day after January the 7th, when they voted, finally, of course, the Vice President, as you mentioned earlier, and I spoke with Sid Blumenthal the other day about his piece, that the coup attempt happened months before, and it failed because Vice President Pence wouldn't go along with Trump wanting to overturn the elections, and then the insurrection happened, and then once the the insurrectionists were out of the pushed out of the house, they did their vote. But on January the seventh, still 147 lawmakers voted to overturn the election results. And unbelievable. Since then, though, even though initially a lot of corporate America was so appalled, and they start well, we're going to boycott these seditionists. In this last year, 717 companies and industry groups have given more than $18 million to 143 of these 147 seditionist lawmakers. And oh, wow. they've given them $2.4 million directly to their campaigns. And the companies that are giving money to these seditionists in the House are Boeing, Pfizer, General Motors, Ford Motors, AT&T, and UPS. And then the Chamber of Commerce, of course, has been uh, giving up to, what, 7.67 million to the various PACs. So there was a very brief, just as there was a very brief moment when the Republicans had a conscience, like Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, and were blaming Trump, and then they suddenly turned around and and voted not to certify the duly elected president. There's been a short-lived outrage from corporate America, has there not? Yeah, I I didn't know know those figures, but... And I'm not. I'm, I'm unfortunately I'm not that surprised. But I think that there's the uh, the the type of money and some of this ideology is so inter- intertwined with the corporate uh, state that um, you know you, everybody is so compromised. And you know it's just it's really disappointing that so few people are willing. I mean I can't believe that all of them still voted. I mean those 147. And, you know, whoever thought that Carl Rove and, and Liz Cheney would look kind of quaint these days and, you know, pro-democracy. And I, I'm talking about Carl Rove's op-ed in the Wall Street Journal this week. It's also a Carl bit Rove, of course, late. was decrying what has happened with the Stop the Steal movement and the Republicans right. abandoning democratic principles. And Liz Cheney, of course, is a co-chair of the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th. But you can't separate them from having supported, um, you know, this fringe element for a very long time. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, uh, out of control. And they're trying some of, you know, the supposedly, um, you know, sober Republicans are trying to rein it in. Uh, I mean, I, I happen to think that the moment that John McCain let Sarah Palin, you know, into the circus tent, and brought everybody in under the tent, then from that point forward, that was all kind of gone. I mean, right. it opened it to the fringe. That's the new Republican Party. Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it very much, Sally Denton. Thanks, Ian. Nice to talk to you. Likewise. Bye-bye.
And I've been speaking with Sally Denton, an award-winning author, investigative journalist, and historian whose books include The Profiteers, Passion and Principle, American Massacre, Faith and Betrayal, The Bluegrass Conspiracy, Money and the Power, and the forthcoming book, The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land, a Guggenheim Fellow and a Public Policy Scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center. She's the author of The Plots Against the President, FDR, A Nation in Crisis and the Rise of the American Right. And she has an article at The Guardian, Why is so little known about the 1930s coup attempt against FDR? We're going to take a brief station break, and with the diplomatic talks between the US and Russia yielding little, we'll look into what a war between Russia and Ukraine might involve. Have you seen the well-to-do Up and down Park Avenue On that famous thoroughfare With their noses in the air High hats and arrow collars White spats and lots of dollars Spending every dime For a wonderful time Now if you're blue and you don't know where to go to Why don't you go where fashion... And joining us now is Taras Kuzio, who's a research fellow on Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia at the Henry Jackson Society think tank in London. He's the author and editor of 21 books, including Russian Nationalism and Russian-Ukrainian War, Autocracy, Orthodoxy, Nationality and Putin's War Against Ukraine, Revolution, Nationalism and Crime. Welcome to Background Briefing, Taras Kuzio. Hi. Good evening. Thanks for joining us, uh, Taras, and uh, you're quoted in a lengthy article in The Guardian today analyzing the possible military scenarios if Russia were to decide to invade Ukraine. They've obviously got considerable military forces poised on the border, and there's a concern that in order to avoid some of the problems crossing the Dnieper River, etc., that they could deploy their troops through Belarus and attack from the north and avoid the marshes and avoid the Chernobyl no-go zone, etc., and come into Kiev as opposed to trying to cross the river. The assumption would be that this could happen late in January when the earth is still hard from the frozen, the earth is still frozen so that the tanks could move. In the spring, of course, it gets terribly muddy. There's also other scenarios of of a marine assault on the Black Sea coast in Odessa and using the Russian troops there in Transnistria in Moldova coming in from the west. So what's your reading on the on a possible scenario? Because obviously the talks that happened between the U.S. representative and the deputy foreign minister of Russia didn't seem to yield anything except a promise to talk about security issues and the deployment of missiles. But nothing has been done to change the blizzard of propaganda coming out of Russian state media. And the concern is that rhetorically Putin has dug a trap for himself and he may not be able to get out of it. Well, um, you've asked many questions there. Um, I don't think that uh, Russia intends to do a full-scale invasion of Ukraine for the reasons that uh, Ukraine is too big a country. It would require um, far more troops. Uh, Usually you need about three to one in favor of the invading forces. Uh, Ukraine has the third largest army in Europe, so about 260,000 troops. Uh, That would require Russia to use something like two-thirds of its army, 600,000 plus, uh, which would mean pulling out a lot of troops from other parts of Russia's borders, like China, Central Asia, Caucasus. So um, even when those troops on the Ukrainian border go up to about 175,000, which is the end of this month, um, I still don't think that's enough for a full-scale invasion. Um, Secondly, uh, you, and Ukraine is, you know, it's just a huge country. It's, it's bigger than France. So, uh, is and thirdly, it's one thing invading, and then you have to occupy it um, and install some kind of puppet government, because the whole crux of this is that Putin would very much like to see Ukraine play the same ball game as Lukashenko's Belarus to the north. Why is it happening now, and what is what is the Western response? 
Well, I, there are three meetings this week taking place. Um, Monday, Tuesday in Geneva, US, Russia. Um, Wednesday in Brussels, NATO, Russia. And then on Friday in Vienna, the OSCE, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which includes Russia and the US. Um, I don't believe that anything anything major will will come out of these three meetings uh, for the simple reason that Putin's major demands, which are viewed as an ultimatum in the West, are simply too big, too major, and um, and apply to too many countries for the US to um, introduce them. The idea that you can somehow go back to 1997 before NATO enlarged to the former communist countries is is really fanciful. It's also one has to remember that in the Kremlin they they really do believe that um, that Washington pulls all the strings, that Ukraine is a U.S. puppet state, and that NATO is a U.S. puppet organization. So therefore, if they just talk to the Americans, then the Americans will just tell the Ukrainians and the Europeans to do what they what Washington wants. It doesn't work like that, despite what they think in the Kremlin. And nobody in Washington has the ability to even tell the Ukrainians, never mind the the Europeans, and in particular the East Europeans, um, that, sorry, you're now in Russia's sphere of influence, or we're going to withdraw our bases, and NATO is no longer really something for you to be a member of. So, um, a lot of what Russia was demanding was a non-starter from the beginning, and I just don't see how um, there can be much progress. Uh, they, they'll, they'll do something, some agreements like on nuclear missiles, which is to the advantage of both sides, um, and um, maybe on military, um, military exercises to try and reduce them or have them not close to border areas. But I don't think anything more substantial. And another major reason why that won't happen is because Vladimir Putin is, is and I don't say this word lightly, um, completely obsessed with Ukraine. He's doing this now, not only because he's a bully and he, he likes to do this kind of thing, but also because um, there have been eight years of negotiations, diplomatic negotiations through the Minsk process after the 2014 military conflicts and occupation of Crimea. Those eight years of diplomatic negotiations didn't get anywhere in terms of what Russia wanted. What Russia wanted was to use those diplomatic negotiations to get the Ukrainians to basically capitulate and say, okay, we're giving up on NATO-EU integration and we're going back to to Russia's sphere of influence, i.e. we're going to become another Belarus. Um, no Ukrainian leader can really agree to that because that would be tantamount to capitulation and treason. So because Russia's frustrated it didn't get anywhere on the diplomatic side through diplomatic pressure, it's now moved to this combination of being a military bully on the Ukrainian border and then issuing these ultimatums to the West because Russia sees all of these as, as you know, what's going on in Ukraine, Russia sees that as part of its sort of uh, conflict or battle with the West. Um, None of this will change very soon. So we're going to have these tensions for many years to come because Putin is president for life. That's not going to change. And his obsession with Ukraine is going to continue as well because he believes wrongly that Ukraine doesn't exist and Ukrainians don't exist. They're all Russians. So therefore, they should be part of Russia. Um, Ukrainians don't agree with that viewpoint, obviously. Um, and um, they would therefore fight to defend their independence. So it's um, it's a difficult situation to see how this can emerge better, as it were, because this is a, this is a, an artificial crisis generated by, by the Kremlin um, demanding this kind of pre-Cold War or Cold War era spheres of influence and and for the West to take its hands off Ukraine because Ukraine belongs to us. Um, it's, that's not going to happen. It's simply not going to happen. And, um, and um, so therefore, I, I'm not very optimistic at, of the outcome of the talks or 
a reduction in tension. I think Russia's options are more likely to be not a mass invasion, but these various types of pinprick military kind of incursions. So maybe, for example, to expand the area in eastern Ukraine, what it controls, what it occupies. From At the moment, it occupies about 40% of the Donbass, maybe to try and take all of the Donbass, maybe to launch some attacks from the Crimea into southern Ukraine, so that to try to remove Ukrainian control over the Black Sea coast. So these kind of operations, maybe a cyber attack, these, these kind of operations. And of course, uh, what they're always very good at is some kind of destabilization internally, political, terrorist, other kind of attacks. Um, so we're not in for people like me will have a lot of work for many years to come from Vladimir Putin. And again, I'm speaking with Taras Kuzio, who's a research fellow on Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia at the Henry Jackson Society think tank in London. He's the author and editor of 21 books, including Russian Nationalism on the Russian-Ukrainian War, Autocracy, Orthodoxy, Nationality, and Putin's War Against Ukraine, Revolution, Nationalism and Crime. Well, when I mentioned the Soviet state media, which I've been following, right. the propaganda has been really intense. And the Russian people, I think a lot of them believe it. They believe that the NATO is coming right to their doorstep. Just the other day, Putin said that they put missiles on his doorstep, which, of course, is not true. There aren't any nuclear missiles on the doorsteps. They're certainly not in Ukraine, but they are in uh, Kaliningrad, which is a Russian enclave close to Germany mm-hmm. and Poland. So... The problem I have with this whole thing is that how do you get, obviously nobody wants war, and this could be really bad, and you don't want right. a war that could lead to a nuclear war. And the first time that Putin deployed over 100,000 troops on the border, they went. the Russians went to full nuclear alert. So mm-hmm. this is all very troubling. But I don't understand, or is there a way to compromise between Russia's concerns about the encroachment eastward by NATO right up to their borders and the fact that countries in Eastern Europe that were previously under the Soviets' control, they don't want the Belarus model. They don't want to be ruled by a thug like Lukashenko. And the Ukrainians got rid of their Kremlin-backed thug and kleptocrat. So this is what Putin offers. Putin offers gangster government. Yes. So yes. on the one hand, he may have Russia may have legitimate security concerns, but on the other hand, they don't offer anything to these people that they so they want to liberate, <laughs> except well, gangster government. Well, exactly. I mean, the problem that Putin has, and of course, nobody's got the guts to say it to him who, who works around Putin, so he does not exactly get an independent advice. The problem that he has is that all of his actions. Are, are generating the opposite of what he intends, um, because he actually generates anti-Russian feeling, whether it's in Ukraine, Finland, Belarus, and now Kazakhstan, um, because his actions are doing that. I mean, Finland and Sweden had no intention of joining NATO, and now they're talking about it. Why are they talking about it? Because of Russian military threats. Um, and, and NATO are more likely to take those two countries than they are to take Ukraine and Georgia. Now, on the question of NATO coming up to Russia's borders, NATO is already at Russia's borders for the last 15 years. Three Baltic states border um, border Russia. So does Poland. Poland borders Russia in, the, in Kaliningrad. Um, and, and so the idea that somehow NATO is moving up to Russian borders, I, I, it's difficult for me to, to say that. NATO and US, British, Canadian... Uh, training and military exercises with Ukraine have been going on without any, any exaggeration since the 1990s, when something called Partnership for Peace was was organized by NATO in 1994. This is nothing new that these exercises are, are taking place. And they usually take place in Western Ukraine, very far from the border um, with Russia. So this kind of training of, of Ukrainian troops Bringing, bringing them, reforming them and bringing them up to NATO standards is not a new thing that's happened in the last few years. On the question of missiles, it's actually quite quite amusing what Putin's talking about. Firstly, nobody's ever talked about Western or NATO or American 
missiles being stationed in Ukraine. That's absolutely simply not true. But the irony is Ukraine has inherited from the Soviet Union a very large and very good military industrial complex. Ukraine, in the Soviet Union, Ukraine had the biggest factory in the world that produced nuclear weapons in Dnipropetrovsk. It employed 50,000 people at, at its peak. Um, so Ukraine is actually producing its own missiles, surface-to-air missiles. They're called Neptune. They will be in production by April. Some have already been stationed on the Black Sea coast and the just above Oz, uh, the Azov Sea. Um, and these have a range of 300 uh, kilometers, or about 400 miles. So uh, um, these are not NATO or American missiles. They're Ukrainian-built missiles. So, so when Putin's talking about the threat from missiles, well, these are Ukrainian-produced. I mean, Ukraine's not going to say, okay, we're going to stop producing these missiles because they're purely for defensive reasons. They're not meant to attack anybody. So I think a lot of this to me, sounds very artificially created. NATO is not about to bring in Georgia and Ukraine into membership. That is simply not not going to happen. Um, there's no support for it, um, or no majority support for it. Uh, France and Germany, two big heavyweights in NATO, are against. So there's not even something on the horizons. And therefore, I I wonder, I try to see what is new on the equation that's making Russia concerned. The only thing that I can see and where the, the timing seems about right, uh, it's not a coincidence, is that on the 27th of October, Ukraine la launched and used for the first time these Turkish-made drones that it's bought and that used them against uh, Russian proxy forces in the Donbass. Uh, Russia was very angry about that. I mean, under international law, under UN resolutions, Ukraine has a right to defend itself. It was attacked first that night, and then it responded with drone attacks and took out an artillery, some artillery, artillery units. Russia, I, I'm very convinced that Russia's actions in starting in early November was in response to that. It kind of sent a wake-up signal to Russia that Ukraine is becoming a quite decent military power. And the longer we wait before we do something, uh, it's more going to be more difficult for us to do. But I think, that, as we've already discussed, Putin's options for doing something in Ukraine are extremely limited because even if you invade and you destroy a big chunk of the Ukrainian army, you're not going to destroy all of it. There's going to be partisan warfare. The NATO countries are going to be supporting that partisan warfare because they don't want that, that military conflict to flow over into NATO member states. Ukraine borders four NATO members. Um, and at the same time, what do you do with an occupied country? You would need to install some public regime. But that's not going to be very stable in Ukraine because the last eight years, of Russian military policies have actually destroyed the pro-Russian camp in Ukraine. It's very, very weak now because of because of Russia's actions. Um, and so the the idea that somehow you can create this this second Belarus is simply fanciful. So I think Putin's a very frustrated and angry man. I think one of the best things that possibly NATO could do is do a whip round for anger management classes for Vladimir Putin. Um, but but his you know his his options are limited, and the longer he waits, the worse it's going to be because um, the Ukraine has is builds up its own military equipment. It gets military supplies from the West. It buys things like Turkish drones. Turkish drones are going to be now produced in Ukraine under Turkish-Ukrainian joint, joint military cooperation. Um, so what are, what are Putin's options? I think he's, um, he, on the one hand, he wants to do something because he thinks Ukraine is part of Russia. But on the other hand, I think he's, he has very limited options available. Right. Well, you've I think you've made a very clear case there, and I, I appreciate it, and I thank you for joining us, uh, Taras Kuzia. 
Thank you very much. Um, I'm sure we'll be discussing this from, from on many future occasions because, as I mentioned, Putin is president for life. And right. he cannot leave that system. He has to stay president. Because... I understand, but we don't also want war and bloodshed. And no, of course. Uh, who, who who does? Do you think right. Ukraine wanted? I mean, I this agree, be... but I'm just saying there has to be a way to stop it if if there is a way. And, uh... <sighs> well, um, the way to stop it, um, and this might not be palatable to some people, um, I, I, because you know people don't really. The Germans, for example, are not very happy about military equipment going to Ukraine. But the way to stop um, or to, to kind of desist the Russians from invading is to make Ukraine militarily stronger, to make the potential damage to Russia of invading so high that Russia doesn't do it. I think there's just one little point about we have to remember about inside Russia. I agree with you about the intense propaganda taking place on Russian TV. But um, Russia, um, Putin realizes that the Donbass is not the same as Crimea. Um, Crimea has this very mythical and very emotional attachment to Russia, and hence why Putin got a big boost in his popularity in 2014. And its occupation has remained popular amongst Russians. But the Donbass doesn't have any really emotional attachment for most Russians. And and that's why Putin until now has been pretending it's a civil war in Ukraine. He's been hiding the fact it's a military war from his own people. Now, if you invade, you can no longer pretend it's a civil war. And he's going to have to now turn around to Russians and say, yeah, we're fighting Ukrainians. And, and I'm not sure he'll get that support, um, that high level of support, because many Russians will go, hold on, I thought Ukrainians were supposed to be our buddies, our brothers. Why are we fighting Ukrainians? So I think he's he's, he's he, he could find that very difficult, especially if lots of body bugs start returning to Russia. Right. Uh, well, uh, Taras uh, Kuzia, again, I thank you for joining us, and I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Bye-bye for now. And I've been speaking with Taras Kuzio, who is a research fellow on Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia at the Henry Jackson Society Think Tank in London. He's the author and editor of 21 books, including Russian Nationalism and the Russian-Ukrainian War, Autocracy, Orthodoxy, Nationality, and Putin's War Against Ukraine, Revolution, Nationalism, and Crime. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice singing something to me Oh